Welcome back to the Not Rich Yet podcast, where we have discussions on all things money, entrepreneurship, and leadership to help you uncover opportunities to build wealth in ways that are meaningful to you. I'm your host and your favorite financial journalist and your financially savvy big sister, Jasmine Sutherland. I'm extra excited for today's guest because not only is she a real estate investor, but she's also an incredible example of the idea that building wealth isn't linear. You're going to experience financial and emotional highs and lows along the way. Mackenzie Great graduated from NYU with around 100K in student loan debt. It took her close to 11 years to pay it all off, and along the way, she worked full-time, she side-hustled, she saved money, and eventually purchased her first rental property. She now owns six investment properties, including one fourplex. Today, she's sharing her journey and talking about how her values and organizational frameworks around money management helped her reach this goal. Mackenzie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. So today we're going to be talking about a few different things, but I always really like to start off with a question around just, you know, childhood and the money conversations that were going on around that time, you know? So what kinds of conversations around money were you having when you were growing up? Yeah, so my parents uh, divorced really young, and I would travel back and forth between them. They lived in two different states, Um, and I I just remember, um, you know, getting an allowance, and (laughs) really at that point, it was like one of those things where we were pretty independent. So me and my sister, like, we wanted something. We had to save up our money and earn it, and each time I'd go to visit my mom in Indiana during the summer, we would always do things to, you know, make money. We would mow lawns, we would sew pillows, we would bake pies and sell them. Um, So I definitely came from two like very hardworking parents who I would say weren't wealthy um, by any means, but really instilled in us this idea of saving. Um, My dad was a very big saver. you know, not too much about investing. I didn't, we didn't talk about that, but definitely about like ways to get a good paying job. Once you get older, um, we always had chores. If we didn't do our chores, we didn't get our allowance. Our allowance was in the beginning, it was a dollar for every year old we were. And I remember at one point, um, my sister was a year and a half older than me. And I remember at one point really lobbying my dad and saying, that's not fair. Just because she's a year and a half older, I'm doing the same amount of work. I deserve a raise. <laughs> and there was definitely a, a period of time where it worked. He's like, you know what? All right, fine. You will get the same amount. But then I remember years later, he like took it back. And I was like, it's not how that should work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely a lot of, um, a lot of lessons around money. And it was always, I always valued the dollar based on my upbringing, I would say. I definitely resonate with that. Um, I don't think I've ever told a story on this podcast before, but when I was maybe like four years old, um, my dad kind of introduced me to this concept of saving money, possibly somewhat unintentionally. Um, I like he was just starting to introduce me to, you know, different dollar amounts and like helping me identify like this is a quarter, it's worth 25 cents. This is a dollar bill like this is what you get with it. So there was this like, 
my size Barbie doll that I really, really wanted, but it was a few hundred dollars. Mm. Um, and you know, my dad was like, if you want the doll, you have to put away money for it. You start small, you save a little bit here and there. And when you have enough money, you can buy it. So I'm like, okay, cool. So he would like help me out with like, saving while also teaching me how to identify those coins and those bills. Um, And eventually, probably over the course of a few years, I ended up having enough um, to buy the doll. And in my head, I was like, oh, he's he's not going to take the money to buy it. He's going to like buy it with his own money. It'll be fine. And then he takes the money and buys it, of course, um, which I was like super surprised by at the time as a little kid, you know, yeah. but that was my first um, introduction to the concept of saving money for things you really want. And to this day, you know, that's my instinct whenever something costs a lot of money and I can't afford to pay for it in full immediately that instinct is to start saving for it. Yep, yep. Do you ever find though that once you've saved all the money for it, then you don't want it as much when you're ready to, to buy it? At times, <laughs> but I will say it'll depend on, on um, what I'm purchasing. Yeah. So for example, right now I'm saving up to go to a few like finance conferences at the end of the year, which that is definitely something where I'm like, no, I'm definitely spending the money on this, but something like, I don't know, maybe like a a new bag or a new pair of shoes. Maybe I think that's something where I might like really, really be into the idea of buying it at first. And then as time goes on, my interest in that wanes, but that's a very good question. I definitely um, feel that sometimes. And I, I think it's similar, like oftentimes with experiences, like I'm so looking forward to it, that that is something that it's, it ends up being worth it in the end. But sometimes when it comes to like an actual item, it's like, uh, I kind of lose interest once I get closer and I'm like, or I recognize how hard it was to save up that money. And I'm like, do I really want it? Cause there's other things I think I want more now. You know? Exactly. And that's why so many financial experts actually um, recommend uh, you know, waiting about 72 hours or so, the longer, the better, of course, but they recommend waiting 72 hours before actually, you know, taking action on an online purchase or any purchase really to make sure you actually want it. Because a lot of times it's the anticipation of -hmm. receiving that item rather than actually having the item that really makes us happy. Totally. Or like filling up your Amazon cart and then you start to delete certain things over a couple of days. You're like, "Eh, I don't really need that. I don't really need. (laughs) Exactly. So was there an expectation for you to go to college or, uh, you know, pursue any other form of higher education? Yeah. I mean, I I never really thought twice about it. I was definitely raised in a house where um, that was kind of always talked about. I was in a school system where I was in the advanced classes. So it wasn't, uh, will you go to college? It was, which college are you going to go to? Um, I definitely remember distinctly my junior year, just kind of having a meltdown when I realized how expensive, um, it's almost like it hit me that year when I realized how expensive everything was. Like, I was like, 
I wanted a car, you know, I wanted to go to prom. <laughs> I wanted like all of these things in, in my senior year. But then once I thought about like, after that, I want college. I, I want to be able to go and like live on my own. And I just, I was kind of like freaked out about this idea of like, how am I ever going to be able to afford it? <laughs> you know? Um, so I definitely wasn't saving for college all along. I knew I was going to apply for scholarships. I, um, definitely was kind of in the lane of like, well, you'll take out loans. Everyone takes out loans. Um, but it was never, you know, really financially planned from, you know, some people have like from when they're a child, their parents are setting aside money. It definitely wasn't that for us. I think because we were raised by a single dad and he often, um, three times a year, he would fly us to visit our mom. So that was quite a big financial expense for a single dad. I just don't think he ever had the means to set aside the money. Um, so I just always kind of assumed, oh, we'll get loans. You know, that's kind of how that goes. Yeah, for sure. I, and, you know, and I think that many other people, uh, were in this situation as well but definitely for me too like we never really had like you know uh this plan of like here's the money that my parents have been saving up for me since the day I was born to go to college this is what I'm going to use to pay tuition but did you ever receive any sort of like professional guidance on how to pay for college, like either through maybe your uh, school counselor or, uh, you know, any other um, resources from financial experts in that field? Yeah, no, I mean, we definitely had a guidance counselor. I would say looking back, the guidance counselor definitely spent more time with certain students um, Mm. than others. And I I wasn't one of those students. I think it had more to do with like, if your parent was super involved in the school, the guidance counselor was on top of it. You know, it often fell along the lines of privilege, I think. Um, So yeah, I ended up like just kind of picking my college out of a book. I actually ended up applying for an acting school, which I mean, I wasn't an actress. (laughs) The idea was like, I just wanted to get as far away from my hometown as possible. So I was like, anything in New York, I'll apply for that. You know, and um, and the other thing too, is each application costs money. So that was a huge deterrent for me as well. I'll be honest, at that age, I was more concerned about like, you know, getting the next cute Abercrombie t-shirt as opposed to like putting $50 towards applying to a college, let alone like several colleges. Um, So yeah, it definitely, there wasn't really guidance there. And I just kind of assumed that if it was a name brand college, then that that would be fine. You know, I really didn't do the the legwork that I probably should have. Um, You know, I just assumed that it would kind of all work out. (laughs) (laughs) which looking back was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So where did you end up going and about how much was the tuition that you were being charged at the time? Yeah. So I actually applied for AMDA, which is American Academy of Dramatic Arts here in New York. And um, I got in and my dad dropped me off. And as soon as he got on the plane to go back, I went down and I unenrolled. And um, I was kind of living in New York City for those three months in a dorm that was like designed for schools that didn't have dorms. Um, And I, you know, I thought I had gained the system. I thought I was good. You know, it was a prepaid and everything. And then the next semester rolls around and they ask for my class schedule. (laughs) And of course, I didn't have it. And I didn't tell my dad that I had unenrolled. So I was like, oh, 
I got a problem here, you know? So I did have to call my dad. Um, no, no, no. Before I did that, I got the village voice and I looked for the cheapest apartment I could find. And it was a little studio in Spanish Harlem. And it was about $775 a month. I remember that exactly. And I go to apply and they're like, yeah, we can't approve you. Like you don't have the financials. And that's when they mentioned this idea of a guarantor. You have to have a parent or a guardian or someone sign with you. And that's when I knew I was in trouble. I was like, oh God, I got to call my dad. <laughs> Let him know. So I did. I, I called dad, um, you know, and I was like, hey, got some news for you. <laughs> and he was definitely disappointed to start off, but he was like, listen, I'm only going to sign as your guarantor. You're going to pay it all, but I'm only going to sign as your guarantor if you enroll in school. So I registered at the community college down, um, downtown, BMCC. And I signed up for that and I went for two years there and I pretty much paid my way as I went. Um, I was working full time, a few jobs. So I tried as much as I could to, to stay on top of that. And then um, after I was graduating there, they, they had a transfer scholarship to go to NYU. And they gave you like a list of majors that you could choose from. And of course I'm going down the list and I'm like, English education. Oh, that'll be easy. I'll do that one. You know, like, again, not really thinking about like what I wanted to do or anything like that. It was more like, I want to go to NYU and a scholarship sounds great, you know? So I got that scholarship. Um, but once I got there and registered, again, naive, I realized the scholarship covered a very, very small part. <laughs> like, it was just like, oh, you know, that's cute. <laughs> um, so essentially after two years of finishing up my bachelor's at NYU, and by the way, at that point I was debt-free, like I hadn't, you know, I paid the community college as I went, um, but I did take out loans for uh, NYU for two of the years to offset the scholarship that I had. And then I did a third year for a master's. And I, when I was done, I was over $100,000 in debt. And to become a teacher, let's be clear, it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't like I was going into a career field like at Stern where I'm like, all right, I can pay these off soon. It was, it was literally like so unnecessary, especially when I later found out about these programs that pay teachers to go to night school. I'm like, wait a minute, I paid over $100,000 to do this. What did I do? <laughs> yeah, so some tough lessons there for sure. <laughs> for sure. So once you had graduated and you had your student loan balance to pay off how did you navigate that like was it something that was immediately top of mind for you were you confused were you like did you have a plan how how did that work like what were some things that were going through your head yeah I mean it was top of mind when I was in school because I was always paying for my own way I was paying for my own apartments you know like I was working full time when I was in NYU too. So it literally, at no point in time throughout college did I not have at least one full-time job and often a full-time and a half job. Um, so yeah, I, it was definitely, I felt the pressure. I always knew debt was bad. Um, you know, honestly, it was a little bit hard too and depressing because I'd look around at NYU and a lot of the other students did have their college paid for by a parent, you know what I mean? So like they're going out living their best life. They're not working two jobs like I was. And it was just kind of like, I wanted so bad to be a part of that world that I was willing to put it onto loans and not think about it. But at the same time, I, I 
always felt the pressure that I was like, no one else is going to pay this off for me. Um, so yeah, I immediately started paying it off. And then I remember getting my first teaching job right out of college. Um, and you know, on paper, it sounds amazing. It's like, oh, you're getting $44,000. Like the year before I'd made like 24 piecing together all these jobs, you know? So I was like, oh, this is going to be a game changer in my life. And when I got that first check back with how much was taken out by the pension, by taxes, by insurance and all that, I literally had a breakdown in the pizza shop calling my dad and being like, you told me this would pay off. This is a union job. Like, you know what I mean? And I, I truly, for the first, I mean, really six years, I was hopeless. I felt hopeless. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm never going to be able to pay these off. And all the other teachers that I had known too, either had gone through one of those programs that had paid for it, like teaching fellows or teach for America, or they came from parents who paid for their college. I was really the only one who was, that I knew that was in this situation where like I was over a hundred thousand dollars in debt to become a teacher living in New York city. Um, you know, and I, I always made frugal choices. We were living in an apartment, me and my boyfriend, now husband, we shared a room, we rented out the other room. It wasn't in the greatest neighborhood. So like I was paying next to nothing for the apartment, um, my portion of it. And I still felt like I wasn't able to get by, but I, I did very, from the beginning, I aggressively paid. I didn't know anything about investing um, other than setting up your 401k. And I just overpaid every penny I had every single month. So like those payments were two, $3,000, just trying to get it down as much as possible. Yeah, for sure. I'm just thinking back to when I had recently graduated um, college and I was working my first uh, like after college uh, job. And one thing I distinctly remember from that experience was just like how top of mind my student loan payments were for me. Um, I definitely didn't have like six figure student loan debt, but it was still very top of mind for me. And I remember another coworker my age which um, she had gone to school in Florida and she told me that her college was free um, through some program there. I forgot what it was, but essentially she didn't have to take out any student loans whatsoever. And that was a very salient conversation for me because it kind of reinforced this idea in my head that like, okay, she doesn't have student loan debt to think about. I do. So the things that I'm going to be able to do, the ways I'm going to be able to enjoy my time uh, recreationally are going to look a little different compared to the way she's able to enjoy her time recreationally. And I think that really speaks to a lot of what you were talking about just now when it comes to like thinking about the things that like maybe you aren't able to do or things that you would like to do at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I will say one of the hacks was always having a side job too. So it, it, I had my full-time job after I left and I still was then nannying on the nights and weekends. And part of the thinking behind that was um, if I'm working, then I won't be spending money. <laughs> you know, I'll be making it instead of spending it, which looking back, I realized that is a workaholic mentality and not good. <laughs> But that, that's what I did for many years. It was like, anytime they offered overtime at the school, I was there. I was like, I might as well stay here and like 
be working and then I won't be out spending money. Um, and you know, when you're young, you, you're friends with your colleagues. So it's also like, this is, this is where it's happening right now. But it was, it was definitely tough. There were definitely times where like people were going on trips or like just in general going out to eat a lot. And it was like, I, you know, you feel a little bit weird being like, no, I can't make it. You don't want to say you can't make it because you're really trying to save all your pennies and get out of debt. But that was the reality a lot of times. <laughs> Did you have other financial goals you were uh, simultaneously thinking about at that time? Or was it just all fully, uh, you know, pay down the loans, pay down the loans, pay down the loans? Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to own properties. So like, I remember making a timeline that it was like, okay, by 25, I'm going to buy my first apartment. By 27, I'm going to buy the second one and rent out the first one. By 29, I'm going to be on the third one. I remember making this detailed chart. And I think that's probably why I got a little depressed too, is because as soon as I graduated at 23, I realized I was nowhere near that. Um, and then in, you know, our generation, like looking online at that time, it was like mostly Facebook, but you'd see people back home who are buying houses or, you know what I mean? Like I just got a brand new car and all of these things. And it really took a toll on me, to be honest. I was, I was like, why am I not able to get to these goals yet? Am I ever going to be able to get to these goals? Um, and there was definitely, I would say a good four or five years where I really didn't think I'd ever be able to own in New York city. I really didn't think I'd ever be able to pay off my student loan debts. Um, and I, it just, it felt very impossible, you know. For sure. And I know that like when it comes to uh, purchasing a home, especially when it's your first home, you know, there are just so many of those like additional expenses that just make the process even more costly, right? Like it's not just about a down payment, you know, right. it's also the closing costs, the fees, the origination, the underwriting, you know, it's, it's a whole process and it all just makes it feel even more expensive. Totally. And I'm glad that I was a little naive to even know about that. For me, it was just, <laughs> I just got to get together a down payment and you're calculating the numbers. Um, but but yeah, I, one thing I did always do from the beginning though, was I maxed out my 403B. It's the same as like a 401k to the fullest. And that really helped. Um, well, that was another part of it. Like I didn't realize not everyone was doing that. So again, the joke was on me when I'm like, how do these people have money? They make the same amount that I do. How can they <laughs> afford all this? You know, and like come to find out years later, like, most people weren't even really even contributing, you know? Um, but that, that did help. I would say probably by like year six, when I finally was getting out of debt, um, student loan debt, uh, I never ran, ran up the credit card. It was always just student loans. Um, but then it, I had that pot of money to access for the down payment for my first place. Now I, I didn't set it up thinking that, um, but along the way it was like, as I started looking into buying a home, that became an option to pull a loan from that account um, to do it. So I was like, oh, wow, I'm glad that I did that, you know. So about how long did it take you to fully pay off all the loans? Oh, let's see. Probably 11 years. Yeah, yeah, probably 11 wow. years, maybe 10. But yeah, it was definitely... And I was paying on them even when I was in school, because the other thing too was 
they were private loans. You know, I didn't, I didn't know all of the details about the federal loans versus the private loans. Um, so yeah, as soon as I got the loans, I started paying that each month. Um, you know, but, but yeah, definitely, it definitely took years, <laughs> years of working full time and having side hustles. And then like, anytime you get a gift, putting that towards it, you know, but I, I also, I, it started to become, I would say more like a game, you know, mm. where it was like, all right, here's where it is. These are my goals. I'm definitely a very goal driven person. I love a good benchmark and breaking it down. Um, so it was always that. And along the way I did get married and we did pay for our wedding ourselves. So that, that set it back a little bit. Um, and there was definitely some questions around, you know, internally, like I wanted a, I wanted a great wedding. I wanted, I have always lived in multiple areas. So I wanted one event where I could bring together all of these different facets of my life. And, um, back then that wasn't, you know, that wasn't going to be cheap. <laughs> so it was like, am I, is this crazy to be spending this money when I still have a little bit of student loan debt and I have these other goals? Um, but ultimately I think that that was a choice that was worth it. And yeah, definitely. I don't regret that. <laughs> I'm glad, you know, and I think that's such a really good point too, right. Is, you know, this idea that, uh, like we have to spend money consciously, right. Like, what makes one person genuinely happy and excited may not make another person genuinely happy and excited to spend their money on that. Right. You know, and I think that your example with, you know, spending on your wedding is an amazing example to, you know, be discerning about what it is that you want to spend your money on. Right. Like for you in the end, it was totally worth it because it was this meaningful experience that not only did you get to have for yourself, but that you also got to share with your family members and your loved ones. And a lot of times you just can't put a price tag on that. Yeah. And I think I tackled it like I do everything else. Like we had a pretty long engagement compared to most people. Like we um, were engaged for two and a half years and we spent two years planning the wedding. And so like we would pay as we go. It wasn't like we got a loan and took it out. And then after the party, you're like, Oh, God, I got to pay all this back. It was definitely we're paying as we go. And then that'd be the exciting thing. What am I going to buy for the wedding this month? You know, and be like, Oh, okay, I'm going to order my shoes, (laughs) you know, or you had plenty of time to look through stuff. And then a lot of it, we ended up, you know, doing arts and crafts and making it ourselves to save money. So it, it definitely became about the experience for sure. Absolutely. And I'm also just trying to like wrap my head around the sheer amount of just energy, mental energy, physical energy, emotional energy that like you had to have behind you in order to, you know, work those side hustles, pay down the debt, you know, and just do all the things. Like, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, how were you managing some of those moments where maybe you were not feeling 100%, but you knew you still had these goals? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where, I don't know, I felt like there was no other option, honestly. And I realized now looking back, clearly there was another option. Like there's other, I've seen people do different things. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have to pay them off that quickly. I could have done things differently. Um, But for me, it really felt in the time like there was no other option. It felt like you got yourself into this mess. 
You need to get yourself out of this mess. And you hear all the time, like student loans can't be forgiven, <laughs> you know? So it's really like, if I don't do them now, they're still going to be there, you know? So it, it really, I felt this intense pressure and I can't say that it always went well. You know what I mean? Like it definitely at times I, I would lie if I didn't say I felt bitter about it at times or <laughs> resentful or like looked at other people like, well, why don't they have to do it? But the truth is it was my own doing. It was my own choices. And um, getting out of it is also something that now I can look back and say that I'm very proud of. You know, I, I felt like it was, it did take a whole decade of my life, but it taught me a lot of other uh, skills that I really needed and um, that perseverance that I needed to move on to like my next phase in life. And like, it, it taught me a lot of lessons that I now am using when I invest that um, I probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So it was definitely exhausting, <laughs> exhausting, but rewarding. <laughs> that is, I mean, I feel like that's a very encouraging note, truthfully, um, for me and for all of our listeners too, you know, because I feel like sometimes, you know, there's just that urgency to succeed that need to feel like you're surviving and thriving and getting your goals. And at times I think it can be a little bit mentally detrimental, right? Like that's definitely something that I've experienced and sometimes still do experience from time to time, right? Where there's also this just component that's a fear of working on the wrong things, which I definitely want to like get a financial therapist on this podcast who can like really dive into that with me and like share their perspective on that matter. But it's that fear of working on the wrong thing and especially for so long, right? Yeah. Because in choosing to do one thing and choosing to spend your time and money in one way, you're kind of inherently choosing to not spend it on something else, right? And we don't necessarily have the foresight to know that like, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z in this order, this is what is going to happen for me in five years down the line, in 10 years down the line, right? And like, there's just that fear that like, well, I'm just trying to do my best. I'm doing what I can now, but who knows, maybe I should be doing that other thing instead. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was always very clear. I never had any doubt about getting rid of the debt. That was the thing that I knew, like, beyond a reasonable doubt, like, that's what I have to tackle first. But I also think part of it was, and it's a blessing and a curse, right? Coming from one of those old school mentalities of like, you save, you get rid of debt, you don't go into debt. If you do go into debt, you pay that off. It really never went past that in my my um, educational upbringing around money, like investing the idea of like even starting that while I still had debt never crossed my mind. It was like, no, you've got to get rid of this debt immediately as much as possible. Um, but it's interesting because I also think tackling such a big goal like that in the beginning, while it sucked and yes, I probably could have made millions had I started investing all that money earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, it did give like a huge milestone, you know what I mean? Like, so when the other financial stuff came later, the goals that I wanted to achieve, like nothing compared to as big as that, you know, like that was like, okay, if I can do that, it may take me a little bit more time to get to this next one, but it wasn't, 
there was no doubt in my mind at that point that I couldn't do it. It was just a matter of, all right, so we're going to do the same thing we did before. We're going to work hard. We're going to learn. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to be um, resilient and it'll eventually happen. And then you learn too that that Pareto curve or whatever, like, you know, it starts off really, really, really slow. And then all of the work starts to compile and suddenly it's going quick. So it was, it was the same thing with, you know, paying down the loans, right? You start off with this massive chunk that's interest and you're paying extra and then it starts to go more and more quicker to, towards paying it off. Um, and it's the same with the other financial goals that came afterwards, you know? Absolutely. So I would love to talk a little more about your entry into real estate investing. How were you learning all these things about real estate? Like, what was your introduction to that concept that like, not only could you own one home that you live in, but you can also earn multiple, own multiple properties and earn income from them? Yeah. I mean, I always kind of knew that it was possible. Um, I have uncles who are like in carpentry and like built houses and that sort of stuff, but we never, they never owned it and like rented it out, or at least not to my knowledge. Um, but I, I, when I first moved to New York, I started to see there was this one woman in particular where I, I was kind of a nanny for her kids. And I noticed that she had done some of that and, you know, just kind of being in the right rooms and hearing certain things. I really started to understand that it was possible just seeing being in a city like this where you see people who have money if nothing else you know that it's possible at that point um and then you start to kind of like figure out how um I always have loved houses I've always been super into interior design so it was kind of one of those things where like home ownership for me was I wouldn't even say the American dream you know some kids dream of having a baby (laughs) I dream of like having a home. (laughs) And um, so it was one of those things where like, I'd always kind of planned out to buy. Now I didn't know how to do it. I had never been around someone personally who like had multiple houses. Um, So after I got out of debt, it was really like, okay, I learned how to get out of debt. I'd been reading about investment and that was a concept that came up over and over. So that's when I continued to learn more. I hit the podcast hard. all of those sorts of things, the websites, bigger pockets, forums, books. Um, and then at a certain point, I was just like, all right, I, I got to do this. I got to buy my first rental property. Um, and I knew that there wasn't really anyone that I knew yet who was doing it. But I, I was like, well, I can, I can be the first one and those people will come. Those mentors will come once you get started. So I definitely took a leap of faith (laughs) and I ended up buying a single family home up in Kingston. And this was a town that I had never been to. Um, I had like done some online research. I I didn't even have a car at that point. I had a friend (laughs) who had a car and I was like, hey, do you want to drive me up and look at some houses and I'll buy you pizza for lunch? And he was, luckily he's such a supportive friend. He was like, yeah, let's go. (laughs) You know? but, but yeah, it, it really just kind of came from reading and hearing podcasts and like knowing that it was possible and that I could probably do it because that's how I personally learn best is through reading and stuff. So I was like, let me just go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. So how soon after you got out of debt, did you purchase your first property? Um, I think it was like three years. No, maybe it was two. 
It was, yeah, a couple of years afterwards. And that's when we bought our primary residence here in Brooklyn. And it was a co-op and the co-op allowed us to put um, 5% down. Well, they required 10%, but they allowed us to put 5% down cash and then take a loan from our 403B for the other 5%. Um, so that, that was the first place. And um, that was really the game changer. That's when I knew I was so proud. <laughs> I was so proud to come home. Let me tell you, I'd be like walking through the hall, like, <laughs> right. I, I own in this building, you know, <laughs> like there's an elevator. That's right. My buzzer works. I don't have to run down and get my food every time. Um, and it, it just, and then it, I felt like I was surrounded by like a different mentality, right? Cause everyone in this building's homeowners too. It's a co-op, like there's no renters. So it's like, okay, wait a minute. And then I see people on the cars and people are going upstate or like out to the Hamptons. And I was just like, okay, well, if they can do it, I've, I've leveled up to this. I'll figure out how I can level up to that at some point. Um, and that's immediately when I started saving for the next place for the first investment property. I was like, all right, we're here, we're set up, we're good. Um, now let's work on the next goal. <laughs> Did you feel like it was difficult or I should say more difficult to save for the second property when you already had a mortgage under your belt? I guess, like, how do you manage that? Right. So for me, I've always been super um, particular about not living above my means. So like we could have bought a, probably a nicer place. We intentionally chose something that like you know, it was a little bit dated, but not terribly dated, but totally livable for, you know, 10, 15 years and it'd be fine. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course I did my own little tweaks that I like to make it look prettier, <laughs> but, but we've always done that. So like the same thing with the first investment property, I intentionally chose a property that I could pay for out of pocket if, if everything went wrong. Like if, you know, the tenants didn't um, pay or, you know, whatever, that I could still at least carry that mortgage myself and then eventually sell. I know some people like to go big their first time. It just really depends on your risk appetite. For me, my number one way to um, curb my risk is always to kind of buy a little bit less and fix something up or just know that I've got that wiggle room to cover it. Yeah, I love that. We had a previous guest who, you know, she was also a real estate investor, um, which I believe you know her, Allison. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had her on um, previously, and she spoke a little bit about making sure the numbers make sense for you, right, when you're purchasing properties. And it sounds like that's exactly what you were doing. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things, too. If you, are pushing yourself to an extreme. For me, it was also about quality of life, right? I'd worked so hard to get to this place that I didn't want to be stressed out every single day. Like, can I pay my bills? So I'd much rather have like a less fancy place, but know that I've, I'm going to be fine than, than to push myself to that extreme and then just barely be getting by. Um, but again, some people that's, that's, that's where they get energy. You know what I mean? Some people are like, let me roll, put it all on there. Um, but yeah, it, it's really up to everyone else to kind of like look at what works for them and what they're going to be able to be comfortable with. Absolutely. So 
With that second property, were you only renting to long-term tenants or were you also doing like Airbnb stuff? Yeah, no, the first property that I bought investment-wise, it was a long-term tenant. And again, my thought was, um, I mean, I was just looking more for security. You know what I mean? Like the the short-term rental at that point seemed a little risky for me. It also seemed like you have to have a little higher price point because you really need to fix the place up and make it cute. Mm -hmm. Where like, this was just, I, I call it a penny house. It didn't cost a penny, but a darn near, you know what I mean? Where it was like, this is a solid class C rental I can paint it, make it cute. A nice family can live here. Um, and then I also took it as like, this is my trial run. Let's see how this goes. Can I manage it remotely? Um, do I need a property manager? What's it going to look like when I don't have a car? Because at that point, I still didn't have a car. Like, what if something goes wrong? Can I get up there in time? <laughs> so I, I really kind of went with what I thought would be the easiest um, straight on, get it up and running and like, just see how it goes first to see if I liked it. Got it. Okay. Wow. So when it came time to like purchase another property, how are you looking at that decision? Were you like taking on a similar approach with the second property? I would say I was still in that mindset. Um, and it took me another couple of years to buy the second property because I was so fixated on what I got the first property for. So I bought the first property in 2017. Actually, it took me three years to buy the second one. I bought the first one in 2017, and I didn't buy my second one until 2020. And I'd been looking. Like, we had toured houses. I put in offers. And I remember, um, you know, walking away from stuff over, like, a couple thousand dollars. And being like, no, it's just not, it's just not where it needs to be because, I gotten, you know, 2017 price on this other thing. So I was comparing everything to it. Um, that is probably my biggest regret to be fully transparent. I wish I had gotten out of that sooner, that, that keeping a small mindset, like every penny matters. Like, you know, yes, $1,000, $2,000 is a lot of money, but it also is not a lot when you like break it down to a mortgage over 30 years. Um, and it certainly wasn't, I would say the best decision if we're talking about investing, you know, it would have more than paid for itself um, in, in terms of the equity in that year alone. But I just didn't, I didn't think like that yet. So yeah, when I, when I bought the second property, it was a single family and um, it was actually right around the corner from the other one, very similar situation, very similar, like amount of work that it needed um, class C long-term rental again. Um, and then, you know, then I was like, okay, I've got this. I own two extra properties. I've got this, <laughs> you know? And the idea was to buy one every year thereafter. And that's when the pandemic hit. So like, I literally closed on this right as the world was shutting down. I remember driving up to Kingston and there were no cars on the road. It looked like 28 days later, <laughs> you know, we're at the closing table. We didn't even have masks at that point yet. I had like my scarf wrapped around and they wouldn't let me use the bathroom because we didn't know how it was transmitted at that point. It was that early in the pandemic. Um, so, so yeah, so bought that, fixed it up, got it rented out. I was also panicking. I was like, who's going to be moving during this? Like, am I going to mm. be able to find a tenant? Um, and of course that worked out to my advantage because people decided to leave the city and move up there. So when it was done, it, it definitely rented out better than I expected. Um, 
but then after that, everyone had a ton of free time. So I'm listening to my podcast, you know, I'm really getting amped up. I'm reading a lot of books and I decide that I want to hit this hard, this real estate thing, like I need to. Um, and I ended up looking for a fourplex and I ended up buying my first multifamily later that year. Well, I didn't close on it that year, but I found it like, I want to say like November. Um, and so then I was like, same thing as always when you level up, am I going to be able to do this? Like this one's more expensive. <laughs> I don't have enough money to cover this each month. If it doesn't, <laughs> you know, like it'll pay, it'll more than pay for itself. But what if everyone stops paying, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> those same sorts of fears. Um, but I decided to, as I usually do call one of my good friends, one of my good girlfriends who has the same mindset and is like, she has a different business, but she's like, you've got this, you know, you've got this, you are going to buy this property and you are going to make a lot of money off this property. <laughs> and I was just like, thanks. I needed to hear that. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so I took the leap and I, I bought it. And, uh, you know, like every twist, of course, as soon as I closed on it, one of the tenants gave notice. I'm like, no, <laughs> this is, and so it starts, you know, um, and then I stepped back and I was like, chill, chill. You got three other tenants there. Um, and so I decided to fix up that unit and then rent it out for, for, you know, market value. Cause the other thing, the other units, all of them were below market value. Um, and that was kind of the long-term plan was as they would move out, I would fix up each unit and then raise it up to market value. Um, but but yeah, that, that first one rented out, no problem. And then as I'm literally in that unit, painting it myself, you know, putting together the floors, um, a duplex comes on the market a couple of blocks away and it's right next to one of my client's houses. And they're like, hey, have you seen this? So I call up a, another mutual friend that I have and I was joking with her. I was like, oh, and that duplex is on sale. One of splitsies. <laughs> and she's she was like laughing and, um, you know, and she calls me back the next day and she's like, yeah, Mackenzie, I do. Let's, let's do it. Let's buy it. And I'm like, really? <laughs> okay. It looks like here we go again. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of been one of those sorts of things. And that was my first project that I partnered on. All the others have been, you know, really me and my husband, although I'm the main one who works on it. So it's, it's definitely one of those things where just the universe kind of keeps working out in terms of, I never feel comfortable going to that next purchase, but I always do it anyways. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, it wasn't that hard, <laughs> you know? Um, but I still feel that anxiety every single time I go to buy a new place. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking right now about like, you know, just that like, I guess, outstanding balance on like a mortgage for something like the fourplex or the duplex. How do you, how do you like manage that? I feel like mentally I'm like thinking about it as like, oh shit, like I still have <laughs> to pay all of that off. I treat it like everything else. It's a checklist. I literally have a monthly checklist here are each of the houses here, are each of the, the mortgages. Um, and as soon as, you know, I receive the check from the tenant, I put whatever amount towards the mortgage and then the remainder goes either to the emergency fund. So I build up properties, emergency funds. And then after that, once the emergency funds have been filled up, then I take that extra cash flow and I put it into my investment pot to buy the next place. But I'm always, um, 
I'm not using the money in real time. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I definitely am thinking like long-term and I kind of treat it like I don't um, have that money, if that makes sense. I'm like, this isn't even mine to begin with. This is the emergency funds money or this is the next investments money. No, none of it's my money. <laughs> But, but yeah, amazing. I like I like a good checklist though. It definitely it feels good too, like to be like, yeah, I paid that bill. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, this absolutely sounds like something that you really, really need to uh be careful about organizing well, honestly. Yeah. It sounds like it can be very easy for you know a person to uh make like a calculation mistake or like just a simple organizational mistake and overlook something. Totally. I mean, when it comes to paying the mortgages, I do it myself. Some property manager companies will take over that or offer to take over that. I never release control of that because I wouldn't be able to sleep at night unless I double check it. So like I, I pay it out when it comes in and then halfway through the month, I run my net worth sheet and I like type everything in where I'm at. And that gives me a second chance to make sure that the payments actually went through. Um, because, you know, sometimes you're right, you can click on the wrong thing or you can think you clicked submit and you didn't click submit. So when it comes to like the actual transactions, I never do it automated. I do it by hand and I check it twice. Um, and I don't allow anyone else to do that because... I have heard horses. I have one client who used a property management company and they just didn't pay the bill for three months. And, and it took her, you know, a, a few months to realize it. And then she was getting like notices about how, you know, final notice or we're going to send you to foreclosure. And she called them up and they're like, oh, yeah, sir, we had some, a transition going on, you know, but we'll take care of it. But that affects her credit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's more than just you guys missing a payment. It, it has serious ramifications. So I, when it comes to that sort of thing, I have to take full responsibility for it. If I'm if I'm the one who is signing up to purchase a place, I have to be responsible for everything that that entails. That doesn't mean I'm doing everything. I also have a bookkeeper. I have a wonderful CPA. But the stuff that matters most that I know, you know, I have to be on top of, those are things that I'm I'm doing myself and I'm double checking and I've got systems to make sure that, <laughs> that it's handled right. I mean, the other thing, you can always work out stuff on the back end, but you got to pay your bills on time every time. No exception. Absolutely. So when it comes to that process of applying for a home loan, what kinds of loans are generally available to you if you're looking to uh, purchase an investment property rather than a primary residence? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different types of loans that you can do. So I, I, I mean, I would say that I mostly stick with conventional loans because the other thing is when you're buying them now, say you've got multiple properties, they will take 75% of the income from a tenant essentially, and they will count that towards your income. So mm -hmm. usually I want to say there are about 10 that are allowed by Fannie Mae before you have to really get creative. Um, but I always stick with conventional first. I have done one hard money loan um, and I tried it out because I thought we had to move quick. You know, that was the whole idea of getting the deal is you have to move quick. And I was working with a partner that was not my husband. So we did that. Um, but to be honest, it, it ended up not being like, it's not always quick, you know, and it ended up being expensive money. Not saying that I'm not glad I did it, but if I could put that down the list of options, I will. 
Um, you can definitely do HELOCs if you have other properties and you have equity in them. I haven't personally done those yet um, because I was waiting until I leave my W-2 job full-time to have access to that as kind of a way to get more capital. Um, there's construction loans. I'm doing one of those right now where essentially they are paying for the entire construction portion. Um, you know, you put 20% down on the whole loan total, what it's gonna be in the end, and then they cover the entire renovation and you get it in draws. Um, so there's just, there's all sorts of options. And to be honest, they're always changing too. They're getting creative because banks want to lend. They don't want their money to sit there. You know, mm -hmm. even this past fall when <laughs> the rates soared, banks were sweating and banks were getting creative. The loan that I got, they offered a free refinance before December of 2024. So I haven't exercised it yet. Obviously, I'm like, you know, waiting for the to finish the renovation, but also look at the market. But I'll definitely be doing that because that saves me closing costs, essentially, for the the refinance. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have people who have a lot of money and need to put it somewhere, you can always do private money loans, you know. Awesome. So how many total properties do you have as of now? I have one, two, three, four, six investment properties. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, if I have even half of that Wednesday, <laughs> I would be so happy. And I, it's it's been slow and steady, though. It's not like they came over and I like, I, I do listen to the podcast and I love them where it's like 22 year old has 5,000 units. Um, but I'm definitely, I would say, you know, of the three little pigs, I'm more the brick pig. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I will take my time. I will build it slow and steady. I'm trying not to get like investor FOMO too often, but. One brick at a time. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. <laughs> so I love to be able to like give people resources that they can like use immediately to learn more and just like, you know, educate themselves, figure out what they don't know. So yeah. were there any like specific book titles or podcasts or blogs that you used to educate yourself that you highly recommend other people uh, looking into if they want to do something similar? Yeah, I mean, it, definitely I'm going to say the cliche, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the book that changed it all. That was the book that like kind of was like, oh, this is how they've been doing it. Um, same thing, cliche, but also very valuable, bigger pockets. Um, but if we're talking more of like the nuances of money and really doing the self-work around that, um, I really liked Kate Northrup's book. Um, and I'm going to butcher the title. Sorry, Kate. But it was like On Love and Money or something like that, where it was all about you realizing how um, money is a form of self-love too, mm -hmm. you know, and not not beating yourself up over wanting to have it. Or, or whatnot, not putting more emphasis on the idea of the money, but it's about what the money can do um, and your relationship, examining your relationship with money and coming to terms with that and working on that. Um, I also like, I mean, I love Afford Anything podcasts, like Paula Pant, of course, just her voice is soothing. Thank you, Paula, your voice is great. <laughs> um, I also like Real Estate Guides. The Real Estate Guys radio show, but it's a podcast. Um, they've been in the game a long, long time. And I feel like 
listening to them really gives a different perspective because bigger pockets a lot of it's geared towards getting people into it and kind of convincing them about how good it is um to start on that journey which i think there's a place for that but the real estate guys is more coming from a place of wisdom and like really kind of guides you through those um uncertainties as the market changes and navigates and it really involves like a lot of them talking about their experiences throughout the years um so i think it's it's definitely interesting um but yeah i love podcasts and i'll give any a try to be honest stacking benjamins is good too definitely took me a while to to listen to that but now i'm hooked <laughs> um yeah and then i really love marie forleo hers isn't all about investing so much i mean there's pockets here and there but her, hers is just more about like designing your life and working towards a, a life that you really um, enjoy that works for you, like figuring out who you are and then, you know, incorporating how you're going to earn money to, to build that life in a way that is, uh, feels right for you. So, you know, I mean, some people might not like to invest in real estate. I've always been interested in that. So that's kind of where I went, but other people, maybe it's building a business, you know, maybe it's, it's one of those things where you're working on the family business and growing that in a new direction. Maybe it's a, a lot of artists that I know. And I, <laughs> I've seen it where they, um, they just are, are struggling with the business component, but they make amazing stuff that really could provide a wonderful lifestyle for them. It's just figuring out how to use it in that direction and feel okay about it, you know? So yeah, lots of resources out there. I also, of course, love Barbara Corcoran's Business Unusual. I'm obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I will link all of those Sorry, in I the show on. notes. No, I love it. The more, the merrier. They will yeah. all be in the description so people can check those out. But And I do I do have a blog, too, that I write, um, macaballtradesny.com. And I mean, a lot of the posts are that. I'll do like a recap of the books that I read that year or, um, you know, just anything related to money, real estate, interior design, any of the stuff that I just like. <laughs> I love that too. I'm going to link that as well. But to wrap things up, do you have any like parting advice for people who want to start to make their way into real estate investing and owning multiple properties? Oh, totally. I would say don't overthink it. That's the number one. So I also do real estate sales. I should say I'm a real estate agent now in the Hudson Valley too. And I work with a lot of investors um, who are just starting off. And I've noticed the key difference between those who actually get going versus those who like really want to, and you can tell they really want to, but they just aren't able to do it, is they overthink it. They're constantly, you know, Bigger Pockets has its place and it's a great resource, but they're constantly like taking everything that's said literally for Bigger Pockets and like trying to fit it into this one deal <laughs> of like, well, I need this ROI and I need this cash on cash return. And it needs, you know, it's just like, Yes, I, I get it. You need to have a basic checklist, but you also need to just know that your first deal is not going to be a killer deal. It will become one over time for sure. That's the whole point of real estate, but it's not going to be like a grand slam, that off market deal that you've heard so much about where you don't put any of your money down, but you make a million off of it. That's, that's unrealistic. And even if it was realistic, you wouldn't really want that because it's not sustainable. It's not 
teaching you that, you know, how to become an investor. That would be a one-off luck if it existed. Um, so yeah, I would say just don't overthink it. There are deals on the MLS. What you need is someone to guide you through that and help you to see that you have to make the deal. It's not just going to be there for you easy, sitting ready <laughs> to go. If so, everyone would buy it. You know what I mean? Like you have to figure out how you're going to take a problem with the property and fix it. That's what you're getting paid for as an investor. And that means you're going to have to take some risk. And in order to take some risk, you're going to have to do some self-work to figure out who you are. What is your risk appetite? What are your goals? And that's going to look different for everyone. So a lot of times people will call me up and say like, well, you know, this is what I want to do. Can you send me off market deals? Or can you tell me if this is a good deal? And the answer is, I can't. <laughs> like, I can tell you if I would buy it for myself, but my criteria, where I'm at in life, my risk appetite is probably very different than yours. I can guide you through it. Um, but at the end of the day, like anything else, you are going to have to have faith in yourself and make that leap. And you are going to have to be the one who recognizes when you're overthinking it and you need to just jump um, or not, you know, but I say, go for it. If it's something you really want to do, rip the bandaid off. Even if the first deal ends up being a bad deal, I've never heard anyone get out. You get, you get the bug <laughs> and you learn how to turn that bad deal into a good deal. Um, you know, and, and yeah, go for it. Anyone can do it. If I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> that is an amazing note to end on. And with that, thank you so much, Mackenzie, for talking to us tonight, sharing all of your experiences and your advice. Uh, do you have any social medias that you want to plug? Do you have anything that you want people to visit, let us know. Yeah, I mean, definitely social media is the easiest place to find me. It's Mac with a K of all trades NY. Um, and then that's my website too, Mac of all trades NY.com. And that's just really a blog that I post, you know, any, anything that I notice I'm getting repetitive questions about, I'm like, let me put pen to paper and just kind of put it there. That way others can have it as a resource or not, <laughs> you know? But, but yeah, feel free to reach out to anything. If there's one thing I like to do, it's talk about real estate. So hit me up. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. If you've made it this far, I want to take the time to thank you for tuning in to today's episode. As a valuable listener, you definitely inspire and encourage me to keep creating high quality content that helps you reach your goals, which is why the best way to show me that you're getting a lot out of this episode and the show is to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. By doing so, you'll also help other people find this podcast so we can all grow together. The more, the merrier. Please also don't forget to follow along on social media. We are at NotRichYetPod pretty much everywhere. Plus, if you're following us on Instagram, you get to participate in fun, money, and business polls in our Instagram stories daily. I do all the researching, interviewing, recording, and hosting, but this podcast couldn't happen without the help of our Not Rich Yet team. 
The show is produced by Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and edited by Will Tarashuk, the founder of Willie T Productions and the founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. I'm your host, Jasmine Suknanen, and I'll catch you in the next episode.